Happy Sabbath. Are you doing well today in Jesus? Amen. So glad that we can be in God's house today. And I am thankful that God has brought us through another week. So we are in the middle of a three-part series on home worship. We began that series two weeks ago, and we will be concluding that series next week. But today's message is entitled Home Worship, the Fortress. And before we pray, I want to just bring to our attention something that we can be praying about as a church family. As many of you may already know, uh, but the, uh, the, the, some of the uh, needs that are in our area come from uh, our, our schools. And one of them is not uh, from local area schools, but across our entire conference. Uh, the education superintendent for our conference has let us know that there's a lot of positions that need to be filled across our conference and our schools with teachers. And then, of course, we think about our, our local school. And I see uh, Phil here, and I know, Phil, you've got a lot of positions uh, to fill uh, there at Fletcher Academy. Um, and these are important positions, friends. Uh, we, we need uh, godly, uh, converted uh, people to come and fill these positions to help our young people learn more about this beautiful message. Amen? And so I really want to just, I want to encourage you. Uh, we put it in the newsletter this week, but it's been on my mind. It's been on Pastor Wright's mind. Uh, will you commit with us to really earnestly pray for these positions, that God would fill them just with the right individual, and we know that God will lead us to those people here at Fletcher and also across the conference uh, because the Lord is coming soon. Uh, so with that in mind, uh, let's go ahead and bow our heads for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we bow our head and heart before you at this time, recognizing and acknowledging that you, God, the king of the universe, would be willing to set aside your kingly robes, be willing to come and live among us. Thank you so much for that gift. Thank you so much for the gift of your son, Jesus. And we just ask, Lord, that as we study these sacred pages of Scripture today, that you would guide us, that you would remove the worries and concerns from our week that is on our minds, the things in the future that we're thinking about. Father, we want to put all that aside and focus our attention on you and your word. I pray, Lord, that you would guide us. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be present as we know that spiritual things are spiritually discerned. We commit this time of Bible study to you and we ask these things in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen. All right, children, I have a question for you. I see some children over here. Hi, kids. I see some kids up there. Hey, how's it going? Kids, I have a question for you, and that is how many of you have ever built a fort before? Yeah, okay, adults, you can raise your hand too, all right? Maybe it's a blanket fort. Kids, you ever build a blanket fort before? You get all the chairs together in your living room and, and, and make sure that all the blankets are covering everything, or, or maybe you go outside and you put a few branches together and make uh, some sort of crude fort. Well, I was thinking about 
forts this past week and the many, many forts that our family uh, built growing up. And I actually found a few pictures with the help of my parents. Uh, This picture, I know it's kind of hard to see there, washed out. But this picture is from Bering Springs, Michigan. Some of you who know Bering Springs uh, will know the uh, name of, of this building called the Howard Arts Performing Center. Some of you have been there to Bering. And our house was taken out to build the Howard Arts Performance Center. So if you know Berrien, this is just uh, behind them. My dad was attending uh, the seminary, getting his master's degree. And this particular fort was actually built at our previous house there in Michigan. Prior to this house, this was on Walnut Street. We lived on a road called Baroda Road. There was five acres there. We were there for a couple of years. And my dad took these uh, six pine trees uh, and... Uh, he said they were about nine feet tall and dug some holes in the ground and, and put together this, uh, this crude fort. But I spent a lot of time playing on this fort growing up. And, and there uh, I am on the right-hand side. My sister Melissa is standing up in the uh, tallest, my younger brother Jonathan and my brother Daniel there in the red shirt. Uh, but we spent a lot of time in that fort, climbing up and down the ladder, ladder, pretending we were soldiers and making sure that if the enemy attacked, we would be prepared for them. Uh, I also uh, think of when we lived in in Tennessee. Uh, We lived on an 11-acre property there in Cookville, Tennessee. My dad was pastoring at the Cookville Seventh Adventist Church. We were there for about five years. And beautiful uh, uh, piece of property there that we lived on. And we didn't have an actual tree fort there, but we put together a bunch of random things that we found. There was an old barn on the property, so there was some some wood that we found from the barn and some old uh, uh, pieces of corral railing that we kind of circle around. There's my two brothers and my cousin Timothy uh, there on the left. Uh, But we would crawl in that fort and spend a lot of time uh, in that fort. I also uh, think of uh, my own kids, and they have grown to love forts, and it's amazing how kids will just immediately find anything that looks like a fort, or somebody's else past fort, they didn't have to build it, and this particular one, we were at a, a park, and someone had piled this grass uh, uh, on these different branches, and oh, my kids thought that was so cool, they were crawling in around that, and then uh, at, at our home, uh, there in uh, Ukaipa, which we sold. Uh, this is our backyard there. And my dad and I, uh, and, and my kids helped as well, uh, put together this little simple tree fort. My kids spent lots of, of, of time in that fort, climbing up and down the ladder and, and uh, throwing things off. And there, there's something uh, with a kid's imagination as they think about being protected by this fort. Because up in that fort, Uh, They're high above everyone else, or maybe they're low on the ground, and they have the protection around them, and no one else can get them. Well, when we look in Scripture, we find lots of forts. And, And kids, I want you to know that the forts that you are building and the forts that you love also are in Scripture. People liked building forts, and they have for a long time. And in fact, when you look in the Bible, you'll find that there are three different words in the Old Testament for fort or, or fortress. And I want to just review a couple of those with you. Here is the, uh, the, the first word that we have, misgav or misgav, and uh, it's translated secure height, retreat, or stronghold. 
The second word that we find is this word here, metsuda, which is also translated fastness or stronghold. And then we have this third word, uh, which is maos, and it means a place of, of safety, refuge, strength, stronghold. And even though they have different connotations, these three Hebrew words are essentially the same thing. Uh, a stronghold, a, a fortress. And what's fascinating is that these three words are used 37 times in the Bible to describe God. So 37 different times in the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew writers would share that God is my ma'ot. God is my metsuda. God is my misgav. He's my fortress, my stronghold, 37 times. And the interesting thing on top of that is out of those 37 times that these biblical writers were saying, you know what, I can relate to a fortress because God is like that to me. Out of those 37 times, guess who writes the majority of those? David, that's exactly right. 24 times. I did a word study once. I was fascinated by this idea, God is my fortress. And I was, I was praying in my personal devotions, God, how can you be my fortress? And I found as I began to study these words and look throughout scripture, that David primarily was the one that attributed this picture in his mind, the image of God being a fortress. He was the one that used those three words the most. 24 times, the other 13 times other Bible writers use them. But the question that I have is, is why? Why did David use that imagery the most? And so to answer that question, we're gonna go ahead and turn in our Bibles to uh, the book of 1 Samuel. So I invite you to turn with me there to 1 Samuel. First Samuel. <clears throat> Here in 1 Samuel, there are 31 chapters, and in the second half of the book, starting in chapter 17, David begins to rise in prominence in Saul's kingdom. We know the story well in chapter 17 how David slays the giant named Goliath. And that act of victory in conquering the giant uh, began to uh, allow Saul to place more confidence in David. And he, and he gives him a position. So let's go ahead and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18. I want us to look there at verse 5. 1 Samuel 18 and verse 5, the Bible says, So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely. Or maybe your translation says prospered. And Saul set him over the men of war. He became the new general, the new captain over Saul's army. And he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Saul put David in charge of his army. He was a good warrior. He was talented. He was intellectual. He was disciplined, and Saul, Saul and David, someone that he could trust. So he says, wow, this young guy, man, he's someone that I can continue to give more positions of responsibility to. And so he places him in charge of his entire army, but quickly that backfires on Saul. Because David became so successful that, look at what the people say, and we know this story well. Look at there in verse 7. As David comes back from war, this is 1 Samuel 18, verse 7. The woman sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Wow. How would that feel, guys, if 
You come home, and let's say you're, I'm not a hunter, but uh, you know, you come home after uh, some hunt, and you know, uh, they're bragging, well, you know, uh, Jeff, uh, he, he got that one uh, buck, but oh, did you see the antlers on it? I don't know. You, you get the point, right? Men, you could, you could tell that probably struck at Saul's pride. Wait, who is this David? Who, who, who does he think he is? And it doesn't do much for Saul's pride, because look there at verse 9. After this, it says, Saul eyed David from that day forward. He had his eye on this young, upcoming leader, and he would do whatever he could to prevent his success. In fact, if you uh, now jump down to verse 29, here uh, David falls in love uh, with Saul's daughter, and that even more puts more worry and fear in Saul's mind. Look at verse 29, and Saul was still more afraid of, of, of David, so Saul became David's enemy kin. Continually. Uh, David can't get out of Saul's mind. He's constantly thinking about this young man and he is worried about him. And unfortunately, as time continues in this story, you find that David isn't just, you know, uh, uh, looked for in order to demote him or something. No, Saul wants to completely get rid of David, completely kill him. So, Look there in, in verse, in verse uh, 10 with me, and we're in uh, chapter 19 now, chapter 19 and verse 10. It says, Then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with a spear, but he slipped away from Saul's presence, and he drove the spear into the wall, so David fled, and what's those, that next word? Escape that night. Here begins the great escape. Saul is chasing David for his life, and David is running away to protect his life. He's constantly escaping. Look there in, in verse 12. It says, Saul's daughter let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. There in verse 18, chapter 19, it says, David fled and escaped. The great chase, the great escape began. And what's fascinating is that essentially from here in chapter 19 all the way through chapter 26, that's eight chapters, Saul is chasing David. This is a big part of David's life. David is running away, scared for his life. He's about to get his head chopped off, and he's running, running, running. That's almost one-third of the entire book of 1 Samuel is dedicated to David running away from Saul. Now, I personally have never been a fugitive before, uh, and I'm sure that you're thankful for that as your new associate pastor. Uh, the law currently is not hunting for me, and I would imagine that, that most of us have not had someone actively seeking our life. Perhaps uh, you have, but, but most of us have not. But, but can you imagine with me how terrifying that would be? If you don't know where your next bet is going to be, you don't know when Saul is going to show up next. You are worried for your very life. I'm reminded of a dream that my mother had. My mother, whose name is Allison, told me once that while we were growing up, she had a dream. And in this particular dream, she had a, a, a man that was chasing her in this dream. Scary dream. It was a nightmare. Chasing her wherever she went. 
She would go this way, and it, I guess it was through a city, she said, and she would duck into this alley, and he was right there behind her. Wherever he went, he was right there. And she was worried and, 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 and you know, scared for her life in this dream. And, and finally, she ducks into a little side business or restaurant. She wasn't quite sure what it was. And sits down there inside and, and looks around. And at, at first, he's not there. And she's breathing heavily. Oh, I'm so glad that he's not here. And she turns and looks to the person sitting next to her. And they lock eyes, and it's that man. And in her dream, that man's face turned into the face of a lion. And my mom woke up in a cold sweat, and the verse that came into her head was, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking those whom he may devour. Now, I don't recall precisely why my mom thought she had that dream, but, but, but it really woke her up. It reminded her that the enemy of enemies, the enemy of souls, is chasing you and I. Although we may not be able to relate to physically being chased like David was, I want you to know that today the devil is after you. He could care less about your life just like Saul could care less about David's. He would prefer that you were gone. He doesn't care how that happens. He doesn't care how far you stray from God, but he is after your heart and minds. In a spiritual sense, I think we can relate to David, the great escape. How can we escape from the devil's snare? How did David escape from Saul's snare? Let's look a little more here at this story. We'll jump over to 1 Samuel chapter 22. Notice here what the Bible says. It says, David therefore, this is chapter 22 verse 1. David therefore departed from there. He's constantly running and, 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 and being chased by Saul. And he, he begins to find these hiding spots. And he escapes to the cave of Adullam. Now this particular location they think is on the borders of the Philistine plain on the base of the Judea mountains about six miles southwest of Bethlehem. I have a map here. I know it's kind of hard to see, uh, but it is likely here uh, that here in Adullam, you can see it's southwest of, of Bethlehem, uh, that David, one of the first places he escapes to and begins to amass this personal army of different people uh, coming to, to join him there, um, but then after that, uh, after the cave of Adullam, he actually heads over to, to Moab. And let's go ahead and look there in our Bibles to, there in chapter 22, verse 3, it says, Then David went from there to Mizpah, now that word in Hebrew means watchtower, of Moab. And he says to the king of Moab, Please let my father and mother come here with you till I know what God will do for me. Now Saul was diehard enemies with the king of Moab. So why is David going to him? Well, remember that David had a, a Moabite connection, didn't he? Remember that, that David's great-grandmother was who? Ruth. She was from Moab. So perhaps that's why he felt comfortable going there to Moab. And he says, hey, while I'm running for my life, can you please protect my parents? Children, should you honor your father and mother at all times? Absolutely. We should honor our parents. And David does just that and places his parents in the care of the king of, of Moab while fleeing from Saul. And, and he ends up 
the Bible says, going to a stronghold. Let's continue reading a little bit. Verse four says, so he brought them before the king of Moab and they dwelt with them all the time that David was in the stronghold. Now the prophet Gad said to David, do not stay in the stronghold, depart, go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now this particular stronghold, uh, biblical scholars don't know exactly what that location is or, or where that location is. Some have said that perhaps it's Masada. Masada is a, a ta- tall, towering uh, mountain there in the Judean wilderness. And on the top of this particular rock, one can see the Dead Sea to the east and mountains of, of Moab beyond. And, and, and perhaps the, this stronghold uh, was this particular uh, location. And there was one way up, and, and so you felt uh, safe that Enemies couldn't attack from, uh, from multiple sides. We're not exactly sure, but the name of this rock today is one of those Hebrew words that we learned. Masada is one of those Hebrew words that we learned for fortress. This was a, a fortress, and perhaps David uh, spent time here, but we're not exactly sure. So then uh, David continues to go into the wilderness. It says that he went to the, the forest of Hereth, perhaps uh, in this uh, location, um, and, and he is constantly escaping, running away, And then look there, let's go ahead and jump over to chapter 23 and verse 14. Chapter 23 and verse 14, the Bible says, And David stayed in, what's that word? Strongholds, one of our three Hebrew words, in the wilderness, and remained in the mountains, in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. While he's there in these Judean wilderness, and you can see uh, here he hides out in various strongholds in the wilderness of, of, of Ziph. And so in this rocky uh, Judean wilderness, and here's one picture of, of what it might have, have, have looked like. Uh, perhaps it was, it was different, but there's some caves that are kind of hard to see here. And there were these different strongholds that were uh, fortified that David felt safe in, not just protection from Saul, but imagine if you're in the middle of a Judean wilderness, it would also be protection from the elements, from the incredible heat uh, that was baking down on that land as well. If you jump there to the end of uh, chapter 23, look at there in verse 29. Uh, It says, Then David went up from there and dwelt in strongholds at En Gedi. This word continues to come up. As I was studying this and saying, God, what does it mean that you're my fortress? And as God led me to these passages, I found that David uh, was very familiar with this idea of a fortress and was constantly going to these different uh, territories. Uh, this particular location, En Gedi, is actually an oasis uh, there by the Dead Sea. And En Gedi means uh, and I want to make sure that I get this right here, a fountain of the kid or the young goat. So a spring of the young goat. And still to this day, there are a lot of young goats that are going to this, this spring that's coming out of the, 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 the desert, literally. So you can imagine David in En Gedi is so thankful. Here's a stronghold and maybe one of these caves back up in the valley uh, that he found, you know, away from, from Saul. In fact, it was in one of these caves at En Gedi that Saul comes in, remember this story, to the cave uh, to relieve himself, and, and David goes up and tears just a piece of his robe off, doesn't harm him, and when Saul goes out of the cave, David comes out and says, hey, look at uh, what I have here, and, and David, uh, Saul realizes that, you know, uh, maybe David's a, a good guy after all. But here we find in Scripture all these different uh, uh, strongholds and, and fortresses that David is setting up uh, from one place to the next. He, he's in one, and then he, 
communicates, someone communicates to him, hey, Saul found out where you are, go to the next one. So he goes to the next one. So these places of, of refuge, these strongholds, literally were places of, of refuge from, for physical safety. If he wasn't in these strongholds and these places of refuge, these fortresses, his life would have been taken. Imagine what those would have been. Protection from the elements, defense from Saul, shade from the sun. They, they provided a shelter. They shielded him. In, in one way, we could say that these places of, of refuge, these fortresses, were a sanctuary for David from his enemies. So with all that in mind, I invite you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 22, our scripture reading. And thank you, Judah, for memorizing that buddy and coming up here. 2 Samuel 22, verse 2. I told him it was easy because it was all twos. Two, 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 two. 2 Samuel chapter 22. And notice here, friends, in verse 1 what we're told. Then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day. When did David write this song? When did he sing this song? On the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. Now we have a little context. Here David writes this song and it's, it's written down at the end of Samuel. This is David's last prayer and he's recalling how God had miraculously saved him. How God had protected his life. How God was a refuge for him. And as he does that, he writes these beautiful words. Verse two, the Lord is my rock. Maybe David is writing this hymn or song on top of Masada. That that big, tall fortress and rock that juts above the Judean wilderness. The Lord is my rock, David says. The Lord is my fortress. As David is, is there hiding in one of those caves, thankful that Saul cannot find him, saying, God, you're my fortress. The Lord is my deliverer. Just, David thinks to himself, just as I was delivered from the hand of Saul and God protected me, God, you are my deliverer, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. There's another one of those words. My refuge, my savior, you save me from violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. I encourage you to read through this entire song, this prayer that David sings to God. It's, it's beautiful. And look down at verse 33. Of chapter 22. God is my strength and power, and he makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of the deer and sets me on high places. Perhaps he saw some mountain goats as he's there on Masada, and as they're nimbling, uh, walking along with no problem, he's thinking, God, you set me on high places above my enemy, above their reproach. They cannot get me here. And that word strength in verse 33 completes those three Hebrew words. In this song, David uses all three of those words we learned in the beginning. God is my refuge, my fortress, and my strength. We want to look here at a, a few more. I have some of these uh, on the screen. Uh, but I want to look at just a few of these times that David writes in the Psalms about how God is his fortress and strength. My loving kindness and my fortress will start at the end of the book. 
my high tower, my stronghold and my deliverer, my shield, the one in whom I take refuge, who subdues my people under me. Now as you read these psalms, you're getting some context and we're thinking, ah, that was on David's heart and mind. Let's read another here. Psalm 62, verse 6. He only is my rock and my salvation. He only. Lord, those, those physical fortresses, yes, you provided for them, but you're my only rock. You're my salvation, my fortress, my defense. I shall not be shaken. When the enemy attacks us with temptations, David says, I shall not be shaken. God is my strength and my fortress. Psalm 59, verse 16, I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. We can sing aloud of God's mercies. For you have been to me a fortress and refuge in the day of my distress. How many of you, friends, have ever been distressed before? We should all raise our hands, shouldn't we? I'm sure distress happens quite frequently in our lives. Life is so busy throws us so many things. And when we are distressed, God is our fortress. And not only when we're distressed is God our fortress, but when we're oppressed, God is our fortress. The Lord, David says in Psalm 9:9, will be a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in the times of trouble. For distress or oppressed, if we're just plain stressed, God will be our refuge and our fortress. Time and time again, we find that. When discouragement threatened to overwhelm him, God, I don't know where I'm gonna turn, he turned to God as his fortress. And after the episode with Saul, as the physical threat of, uh, of death escaped him, as David began to deal with more spiritual and moral problems in his kingdom and with his family and his kids, David was plagued with so many issues with his kids, wasn't he? And we, we resonate with that. So we think about our children and where they may be or our loved ones. But as David thought about the different problems that came his way, he turned to God as his refuge and strength. And as I was studying this one day, I asked God, God, how can you be my refuge? What does it mean for you to be my refuge and my strength? And God led me to, to Psalm 27. And I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles there to Psalm 27. Psalm 27. Notice the language here, the, the, the similarities with what we read before in, in 2 Samuel. The Lord is my light and my salvation, he says. Whom shall I fear? You imagine when David was in a dark cave, back there in the very back, maybe the cave of Adullam, maybe the caves there at En Gedi, and, and he's there in the back, hoping beyond hopes that Saul won't come, and he thinks to himself, God, you are my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? That's a rhetorical question, isn't it, friends? Do we have to fear when the Lord is the strength of my life? No, we don't. When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. David knew very well what it was like for his enemies to come and eat up his flesh. 
And often when I read the Psalms and I think about the frequent conversation and word choice and discussion about enemies, constantly the psalmist, not just David, but, but the other psalmists, the sons of Korah and, and Asaph and the others, talk about the enemies. And sometimes I think to myself, well, well Lord, I, I don't you know, have too many enemies, I hope. I mean, maybe there's uh, some enemies that I have, but I don't think I have too many. And then I think of what we're told, that the greatest enemy is self. Isn't that what Mrs. White says? The greatest enemy is self. As I think of these verses of, of David and the other psalmist saying, Lord, these enemies are coming after me, I think of how myself rises again and again. I try, it's like that game, whack-a-mole. You're trying to hit self down time and time, and it keeps on popping up. Lord, I can't, please help me. Lord, I, I, I was impatient again, or Lord, I said that again, or Lord, I missed out on an opportunity again. God, I'm sorry. And I'm sure many of us resonate and, and feel along with David when he says his enemies come up and say, Lord, my greatest enemy, the greatest battle ever fought is the battle against self. But the Bible encourages us when self comes against us. Though an army, verse 3, of, of selfishness may encamp against me, my heart will not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. What was David confident in? Was he confident in his army? He gathered 400 men there at the cave of Adullam. There was a lot of people coming to David's side. I mean, if I had a, an army, Big king like Saul that had all of these resources at his command coming against me, I sure would take comfort in some physical uh, ways of, of conquering him. What is David confident in? Look at verse four. One thing I have desired of the Lord that I will seek. One thing, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord. All the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David knew that his strength came from being in the temple. But listen, friends, I believe that David very well recognized that he did not physically have to be in the temple to spiritually be in the temple. That David didn't have to physically go to the sanctuary and say, all right, I'm here. The king is here. Let me come inside and worship my God. But David knew something. Notice the next verse, friends. Verse five, for in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his where? His pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. Here's that imagery that David uses, and as he's thinking to himself of maybe perhaps Masada, he will set me high upon the rock, and there in that place, spiritually speaking, David was in the sanctuary. As I thought to myself, God, how can I go to your pavilion? How can I go to the secret place? What, what is the secret place? God led me to Psalm 91. We know this one well. Psalm 91. Psalm 91. Verse 1. He who dwells. He who abides. He who lives in the where? The secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will save the Lord. He's my refuge and my fortress. Here's Moses now writing. 
my God in whom I will trust. Moses realized that God was his fortress and his refuge. As I read Psalm 91, I said, God, okay, the secret place is like the fortress, but what is the secret place? And then God led me to Psalm 31. Turn with me to Psalm 31. Are we okay to do a Bible study today? Psalm 31. Psalm 31, verse 1. Here's David writing, In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Constantly using these words like deliverance. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Have you ever asked God, Lord, I need your ear right now. Will you bend your ear to me? You feel like God isn't there. Maybe he's not listening. But I want you to know today, friends, that God hears your prayers. When you pray with a contrite heart and you pour out your heart to God, even though it feels like he's not there, he is. Bow down your ear to me, deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, David says, a fortress. There's that word again, a castle, a fort of defense to save me. You are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. As I continue to read through Psalm 31, I came across verse 20. Jump down to verse 20 of Psalm 31. David's talking about these same themes of being God, being a fortress and a, a refuge. And then I found out what this secret place is. Verse 20. You shall hide them in the secret place of your what? Your presence. From the plots of men, and then we see parallelism. Hebrews, or the Hebrew writers often employ this, this uh, uh, poetic way of, of sharing information, and, and it's called parallelism in Hebrew. So they would say one thing and then say it exactly the same in a different way. So notice how he says the same thing in a different way at the end of verse 20. You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion. We just read before in Psalm 21 how the pavilion was the tabernacle. You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. So the secret place, you shall hide them in the secret place of your pavilion, of your tabernacle, of your presence. And tell me, friends, what portion of the tabernacle was God's presence, his direct presence? The most holy place, isn't that right? The most holy place. Here in Psalm 31, we find that the psalmist could envision himself going into the most holy place. Some of us have seen this picture before and familiar with an outline of the sanctuary of the holy place and most holy place, three pieces of furniture in the holy place, and right there in front of the veil, separating the holy from the most holy, God's Shekinah glory here in the most holy place, and this big thick veil separating the two. Day after day, blood, Coming in from the sacrifices onto this veil, Jesus can cover our sins with his blood, friends. And this altar of incense placed before the veil, the incense, as we know, would travel up and over that curtain right there into the most holy place. The Bible makes it clear, friends, that that incense represents our prayers. That when we pray, that when we pray, God doesn't come down to us, but we're brought up to God. Jesus lifts us up, and we are brought into the audience chamber of the God of the universe. Notice what we're told here, friends, in my life today. Prayer, whether offered in the public assembly, the prayer that was offered today at church, or at the family altar, 
Have you been praying at the family altar this week? Or in secret, praying, praying alone in your closet. When you pray, it places people, humans, directly in the presence of God. Wow. Prayer places us directly in the presence of God. Elsewhere we're told that when we pray, we come by special invitation from Jesus himself into the audience chamber of God. And in my mind's eye, I can see myself as I'm praying, walking down maybe a, a, a big theater style, and there on the, 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 the front uh, uh, stage of, of this auditorium is a, is, a, is a couch, perhaps, maybe a white couch, and there's God himself, and he's sitting there, and as I come to him in prayer, he invites me to join him on the couch and says, my child, I'm so glad you're here. I missed you. How are you? How is your week? And sometimes when we come into the audience chamber, we have our backpack on or maybe our work satchel. God's so good to see you. Oh, I'm so glad that you're here. Oh, really great. Oh, yes, high five. Oh, I gotta go. You know, it was really nice to meet with you today, but I have a lot of work today. And as Mrs. White says, we rush in and out of the circle of Christ's presence too soon. And God is inviting us to sit and wait in the audience chamber with God. A little God please bless this food isn't gonna do it, friends. We need those prayers. A, a, a quick, Lord, please be with us today. Yes, those times are needed, and I'm the first to say as a family man, Lord, we have had a lot of those prayers. And God hears those prayers, doesn't he? But we also, yes, we need the family altar, but we also need the one-on-one, -on -one secret communion with God. Those silent prayers rise like precious incense, steps to Christ says, before the throne of grace. And I love this next line, friends. Satan cannot overcome him whose heart is stayed upon God. Satan cannot overcome him or her whose heart is stayed upon God. When you come into that audience chamber and you're on your knees and you're pouring your heart out to God and you're resting in his presence and you come to a place where you can say with the psalmist, one day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. Earnestly I seek you, David says, as in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. As the deer pants for streams of water, he says in Psalm 42, so my soul longs after you. When you long after the presence of God and your heart is stayed upon him, Satan cannot touch you. As I was studying this this one day and thinking about God being my fortress and realizing that God could be my fortress when I come to him in prayer, that when I seek him on my knees and I seek him while I'm going throughout my day, that, that God brings me into the most holy place and protects me from the strife of the day. And as I was thinking about that, saying, God, tell me more. How else can I be a, a fortress? What, what, what do you mean that Satan cannot touch. I came across this quote from Desire of Ages. The soul that yields itself to Christ becomes his own fortress, which he holds in a what type of world? A revolted world. 
And he intends that no authority shall be in it but his own. Christ desires when he grabs hold of your heart and mind and says, hey, you're mine today. There's a revolted world around us, but he leads us to a rock that is higher than I. There's, there's, there's people complaining and problems happening, but God lifts us above the miasma of this world. And he holds our heart and mind, and as we yield ourselves to him, he holds us in that fortress. And the soul that is thus kept by heavenly agencies is impregnable to the assaults of Satan. Just like up on top of Masada, that big rock, Saul could not touch him there, and when you spiritually are on that rock with Christ, Satan can't touch you, friends. But, here's the but, unless one does yield themselves to Christ, they will be overcome. Friends, we have absolutely a role to do. We need to yield our hearts and minds to him. That is a constant thing throughout the day. How many times, friends, have you spent some beautiful time on your knees with Jesus and just one hour later, self comes popping up again. Ah, Lord, I spent so much beautiful time with you. How could that happen? Constant yielding. We cannot do it on our own. But I believe, friends, that this is where true power comes. I believe that this is where true power comes, that when we pray as a church, when we seek him in prayer, that is when great things are gonna happen, friends. Just last week, we heard about that, didn't we? Thank you, Tammy, for sharing that testimony about hope. And I love the part of that testimony where essentially, it was at the very beginning, where Tammy said, you know what, the reason that I had this love for this person was because of Jesus. I started praying for the Holy Spirit. That's when things started happening. Isn't that true, friends? And I have realized that in my own life time and time again. The only way that I can have a deep love for someone else is when Jesus gives me his love for them because I don't have it on my own. And that's why we're told this in Patriarchs of Prophets, a familiar quote. The greatest victories to the church of Christ or to the individual Christian are not those gained by talent or education. You can have all the degrees that you want. Education's important. You can have all the talent that you want. It's important to use your talents for God. It's not those gained by wealth. You can have all the money that you want or the favor of men. You can be as popular as you can be. But those will not gain you victories, friends, in the cause of God. They are those victories that are gained in the audience chamber with God. When earnest, agonizing faith lays hold upon the mighty arm of power. Friends, I believe with all my heart that God is desiring us to become a people of prayer. He is desiring for us to share the good news with others and as we spend time in his word, he will end up giving us a love for others. I heard the true story of a pastor, he was pastoring in the state of Kentucky and one day at his church, he got a phone call from someone that uh, he was kind of dreading taking this phone call. It was a church member that he had spent a lot of time with, the pastor and him, and this church member was constantly complaining. Pastor, God doesn't care about me. He doesn't know who I am. I've been praying for a job for a year. I still don't have a job. He doesn't care about me, Pastor. 
And he heard this time and time again. The pastor did from this particular church member. And the pastor was praying about it. Lord, how can I share with him? How can I encourage him? It's difficult, Lord. He's been talking to you. So finally the pastor asked him, sir, tell me about your prayers. Why? I'm praying for a new job. Well, what else do you pray for? That's it. I'm praying for a new job. Lord, give me a new job. And that's what the pastor said. Ah, that's the issue. You're focused so much on what you want, it's becoming a selfish prayer. Lord, help me to have this. And you're thinking so much about that job, you're not thinking about anything else. He said, I want you to do three things for me. Number one, I want you to go home, and I want you to write down ten answered prayers. Ten answered prayers. Oh, pastor, I don't know if I can do that. Come on, come on, please. How long have you been going to this church? Oh, a long time. How long have you known me? Oh, a long time. Come on, you can think of in your life. I know you feel like God's not there right now, but you can at least think of 10 things that God has done for you. Maybe it could be 30, 40 years ago. Okay, I'll try. Here's the second thing I want you to do, he told him. I want you to write down 10 Bible promises. Open up your Bible. When's the last time you opened your Bible? The man kind of got sheepish. Oh, it's, it's, it's been a while, Pastor. Open up your Bible, crack it open, dust off the cover, and I want you to find 10 promises. Uh, do you know what a Bible promise is? Yeah, yeah, I know what a Bible promise is. Think of one. Uh, Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Great, the pastor said. That, that's it, yep. Go ahead and write that down. So write down 10 answered prayers, 10 things God has done for you in your life, and then write down 10 Bible promises. And finally, the third thing that I want you to do, when you're done with that, it doesn't have to be the same day, it could be the next day, the day after, but I want you to find somebody that you can share this with. Because I found, he told his church member, that when I'm focused on myself and God answering my prayers, I get discouraged. But when I'm focused on other people and praying for their problems, God encourages me. There's some truth to that in there, friends. Sometimes we're so focused, Lord, help me to do this and help me get this great or help me to get this job and we forget to pray for other people. And maybe the discouragement comes from focusing on ourselves. So the pastor doesn't hear from this man for a few days and a few days later he calls back and he is so excited. Pastor, pastor, you'll never believe what happened. You got a job? No, no, I didn't get a job. Even better than that. The man's pastor's thinking to himself, what? This man has been complaining about not having a job. That's a big deal. He's been praying about that for a year, and suddenly he tells me that something better than getting it. What, what is he talking about? You'll never believe what happened, Pastor. I went home, and it was, it was a hard, hard thing. I, 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 I finally was able to think of 10 things, and it took me a while. My wife had to help me, but, but we came up with 10 ways that God has blessed our family and done something for us over our lives. And that, that encouraged me, and I, and I opened up the Bible, and, and, I, and I found t- 10 Bible promises. One of my favorite pastors is, is Zechariah 4, 6, not by might, nor by power, but through the Holy Spirit. He could tell the man was excited, and the pastor thought that would be the end of the conversation, but the man said, but then, you'll never believe what happened next, pastor. I was thinking to myself, who in the world am I gonna call? He was kind of embarrassed, thinking of, of someone to share this information with, and, 
And immediately the Holy Spirit put on his mind a former coworker from when he had his previous job that he had saw on social media had just lost his wife and his son in a tragic car accident. And this church member said to himself, ah, this is the man I have to call. I still had his number in his phone and, and he calls him up and before he can convince himself not to do it, he calls him up and he's pacing back and forth and he's nervous and the other man says, uh, hello? Oh, hi, this is so-and-so and, and my pastor told me to do this and, and he gives the 10 answered prayers and 10 Bible promises and, and he gets through, okay, I'm done. And there's silence on the other end. This church member thought maybe he offended him. Maybe he said something wrong. And, and finally, the man, through his tears, you could tell through the phone that he was crying. It was a true story. Finally spoke up and with a quivering voice said, thank you, thank you, thank you. He said, the very moment that your call came through to my phone. I was about to end my life. I had a weapon. I was in my room by myself. And I asked God, God, if you really care, if you really care, let me know right now. And you called. Now I know that God cares about me. Now I know that our Father cares. And the church member told the pastor, that was the best thing that's ever happened to me. I don't care if I get a job. What else can I do? Give me some more assignments, pastor. <laughs> Friends, I want to encourage you. Maybe some of you are struggling in your walk with God. Maybe you came in today and you are far from God. Maybe you come in questioning God in the first place. You know, this whole religion business, I don't even understand. Or maybe you came in discouraged thinking, how in the world is this going to happen and is this bill going to be paid and, 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 and what about this, God? You came in discouraged today and I want to invite you to try those three things. To go home this afternoon or evening or maybe tomorrow morning in, in your quiet time with God and, and write down 10 answered prayers. Think of 10 ways that God has blessed you in your life, 10 ways that he's done something for you. I have to admit, this week I was at Ted and Nancy Jones' place. Many of you know that I live there, and I'm looking, uh, where is Frank Cox? Where are you at? Uh, I saw you just, there you are. Frank, uh, we were taking care of uh, Nancy's dog, and she had right there on her table, um, just in clear sight, a little book that said, Miracles by Frank Cox. Remember that little booklet that you put together, Frank? And I got to read a couple of those. That encouraged me, Frank. What if we did that? What if each one of us wrote down a little booklet of things that God has done for us? Wouldn't that encourage us, friends? And then what if we took our, our Bibles and we opened them up and wrote down 10 Bible promises, ways that God has, has encouraged us in the past through his word? And then what if the third important thing that we pray, God, who do you want me to share this with? That's the challenge I believe that God is giving us this week. And the question that I have is who is willing to take that challenge? We come to church week after week and we hear the pastor and preacher, but this is a tangible, specific challenge. Who of you this week is willing to? You don't have to, it's optional. 
willing to write down 10 answered prayers, 10 Bible promises, and share that with someone you think needs encouragement. If you're willing to do that, I want to invite you just to raise your hands. Praise God. God sees your hands. God knows. I encourage you to keep that promise, friends. I believe that God is wanting us to use our times of prayer to encourage those around us because our God is a mighty, mighty fortress. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being a mighty fortress, a bulwark that never fails. Lord, from age to age, you are the same. And we are so thankful for that, that you never change. And Lord, we commit our hearts and minds to you. We commit to give you our time this week, to spend more time on our knees, to spend more time seeking you and sharing that with other people. We love you. We thank you for loving us first, and we pray all these things in the name and blood of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen, amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much for joining us here at the Hendersonville Church today. You're welcome to join us for potluck. Maybe we'll see some of you in a couple hours at 2.30. God bless.